Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 477 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing and publishing and how to succeed as an author or writer. Now, how have you been, everyone? What has been happening in your world? Well, over here, I've been gardening and interviewing lots of fantastic authors for upcoming episodes. I'm really excited about bringing them to you. If you're a regular listener, you may know that I now have a very large garden after basically not having one at all. And it's been a big learning experience for me and I still have a long way to go. There's so much that I don't know. Big shout out, of course, and big thanks to my former co-host, Alison Tate, for a subscription to Gardening Australia. Side note, I love quality magazines, and if you're a certain age and grew up before the internet, you'll know what I mean. Because the great thing about a quality magazine, not just any magazine, but a magazine edited by a professional who really knows their stuff, is that it is curated, carefully curated. So you read what you need to know, curated by someone who can stand by its credibility, as opposed to, you know, going down the rabbit hole of cyberspace, sometimes finding out bits and pieces that you do need to know, but equally finding out a whole lot of rubbish as well. And it's often hard to differentiate between the two. So yay for quality magazines. In fact, one of my little luxuries that I just love doing is stacking up on quality magazines at the supermarket or the newsagent or wherever, or the bookshop sometimes, and curling up with a cup of tea or glass of wine, depending on what time of day it is and what kind of day I've had, and just indulging in them, you know, pouring over them. I love it. Okay, but I digress. Back to my garden. Now, there's a little patch of my garden that I don't know why. I'm obsessed with it. I don't – I'm not actually sure why, but it's the bit – where I spend the most time on and it has a lime tree on it and it's, you know, laden with limes and I'm constantly nurturing that tree. Anyhow, a few months ago I was weeding and clearing the area under and around the tree and I started pulling out what I thought were weeds. And after getting rid of quite a bit of it, I looked more closely and realised that they were strawberries and they were adorable and cute and the little flowers really cute. So I thought I'd better leave them because they're so, they're just, they were just lovely to look at and they're so cute. Like I said, that was a few months ago and, you know, I kind of thought, oh, I shouldn't be pulling out strawberries, right? Well, when the sun came out on the weekend, I decided to get back into the garden after not being able to get to it, you know, thanks to all that rain and the strawberries had taken over along with a huge amount of weeds. So after googling I discovered that those strawberries are actually a sleeper weed. I know those of you who are green thumbs and avid gardeners are probably rolling your eyes and thinking duh but you know this whole gardening caper is new to me. Anyway I had left them growing because they seemed so beautiful and cute. They were like my darlings. And over the weekend, I realized that I had to kill my darlings. I had to get rid of them so that I could even access my beautiful lime tree and have any chance of picking my limes. And 
Well, so I had to get rid of them and the other weeds around, the many other weeds around, so that they weren't robbing my beautiful lime tree of the nutrients that it needs to grow and thrive and give me more limes. If you've been around the writing world for some time, you'll know exactly what I mean by killing your darlings. But if you haven't heard it before, kill your darlings is when you have to eliminate or kill, ruthlessly kill those words or characters or side plots or phrases that you might personally just really like or or that means something to you in some way or that you think are just beautifully written or that you laboured over for a long time, but they don't actually add value to your story. And ultimately, they not only distract readers, they can just detract from the reading experience completely because they may hide the main story that's trying to emerge, you know, that story that's fighting its way through those darlings. It's hard to do because you love them for some reason and that's why they're called darlings but you do need to get rid of them if you want your story to work. Now because I thought those strawberries were so cute they were my gardening equivalent of those literary darlings and once I realized they had to go the whole gardening experience was so much more enjoyable and efficient Not least because I wasn't trying to weed while still trying to preserve those silly strawberries. And now, after a lot of effort and many green bins full, I'm pleased to say my lime tree is now there in all its glory without being choked and hidden by other plants and strawberries and weeds. So if you need to kill your literary darlings in your story, Be ruthless. Get rid of your darlings. Get rid of the strawberries. If you can't bear to lose those darlings, simply put them in another file so that you're not deleting them completely. Trust me, your story will be better for it. Now, a big shout out to one of our graduates at the Australian Writers' Centre because the Premier's Literary Awards were announced and in the Patricia Wrightson prize for children's literature in the highly commended list was The Boy Who Tried to Shrink His Name by Sandhya Parapakaran. So congratulations to Sandhya because this is such an incredible achievement to be on such a prestigious awards list and we're so thrilled for you. So big cheer for Sandhya. Now I want to move on to another writing tip from a post from the Write to Done website and it's about genre. The post is called What Genre Is My Book? Four Simple and Easy Ways to Choose and it has a lot of good information about what genre is and some tips on how you can figure out what genre your book is. But I really want to focus on the first step which is get to know genre options. I hear so many people say oh my story doesn't really fit any genres or I don't know what genre my story is, well, then you need to learn. Spend time looking at how books are organised at your local bookstore or on online stores like Booktopia. And I mean, really look, dedicate a whole morning to it. See what the keywords are, the recurring themes, the cover designs, everything in each genre. You might even discover that your story is in a a genre that you've never considered before. Now, remember that bookstores whether online bookstores or actual bookstores, are organised into sections. And that's how people find what they're looking for. You know, it's like if you go to a bakery, 
you know you want something, but you're not exactly sure what. You see all the croissants and pastries in one section, and you're not in the mood for a pan au chocolat. So then you look at the cheesecakes, but that's not quite right either. And then you see the banoffee pie. (laughs) And of course, that's what you wanted all along. Anyhow, the point is that it's organized so that it's easier for you as a buyer to decide what you want. If the sausage rolls were just randomly placed in amongst the cookies, you'd never find them, right? So you have to know if your book is a sausage roll or a croissant. (laughs) It's so that bookstores and marketers and agents and librarians know where to put it. You can find the link to that post for Rights Done in the show notes. Now, are you ready for the word of the week? All right. This week's word of the week is anguilliform. Anguilliform. A-N-G-U-I-L-L-I-F-O-R-M. Anguilliform. What does it mean? It's an adjective meaning having the shape or form of an eel (laughs) and quiliform. So you could use it in a sentence like, uh, I shrank back as he reached his anguilliform arm toward me. (laughs) Well, maybe you wouldn't say that, but anguilliform. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Alrighty, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. This week, it's Alison Stewart. I absolutely loved chatting to Alison because she has carved out such a successful career as a historical fiction author, and she hasn't confined herself to just one specific period of history either. She's got so many novels, such a diverse list of novels set in the Regency period, with her latest being Lord Somerton's Affair, also in the English Civil War, like Feathers in the Wind, and also in Australian history, like The Postmistress and The Goldminer's Daughter. And because she's not busy enough writing romance, she also writes historical mystery books, mostly set in Singapore as A.M. Stewart, like Evil in Emerald and Singapore Sapphire. Alison is just an extremely prolific full-time author. So I was really excited to chat to her about how she does it all and what she's done to nurture and structure this very successful career. Let's have a chat to Alison Stewart. Alison, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me, Valerie. Now, wow, you write under different names in different genres, four different publishers, and you also (laughs) indie publish. Just give listeners a snapshot of all of the things that you do in the various buckets, so to speak. Wow, that makes me tired just thinking about it. It (laughs) It's not quite as bad as that. I I, I look, I write historical romance, or as I prefer to 
call it historicals with romance as Alison Stewart. Um, However, I I have recently, uh, since my husband retired, taken to murder and I write um, historical mysteries (laughs) as A.M. Stewart, uh, published by Berkeley Penguin in the USA. I also I, I have a little dabble in contemporary, which I, I write as Ellie Stewart. <laughs> My husband says it's getting very crowded in bed. <laughs> yes, it's very busy. <laughs> and and as you say, um, somewhere along the line, I, I also I also do a little bit of indie publishing as well, which um, which I enjoy. But haven't really done, I've only done short stories in more recent years, not the full length novels that I was doing. So yeah. Yes, it's kept, certainly kept me busy over the last two years, particularly the two, uh, the, the Harlequin Mirror books and the Berkeley books. We kept mm. me very busy. I think it's hilarious that you say, when my husband retired, then I started writing about murder. <laughs> I don't Is there a cause an and effect there? <laughs> I don't think it's an original quote. I think I, I think it goes back to Janet Ivanovich. <laughs> so, said something very similar. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> now tell us about your latest book. Well, the latest one that was released uh, uh, September 21 was um, Lord Summerton's Air. Mm. And I have to sort of be correct to say it is actually a re-release. It was originally published by the the other imprint of uh, Harlequin Australia Escape, uh, just as a digital only book. And um, Harlequin in its uh, eternal and blessed wisdom um, brought it out as a a print book for which I'm eternally grateful because it's just like, I've always felt that Isabel and... um, and uh, Sebastian deserved deserved a little bit of a bigger audience than they were getting just as the ebook. So yes, look, it's my my one and only Regency romantic suspense. I think I would describe it because it started as me trying to write a, a Regency romance, but um, turned into a little bit of a murder mystery as well. So there's a, a war veteran with uh, an unexpected uh, inheritance. Um, a uh, a lovely widow who uh, who just wants to get on with her own life, and uh, and a, a badly neglected uh, aristocratic estate that needs a great deal of work, and um, a couple of unexplained deaths to to solve as well. So yes, that's Lord Summerton's there. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you have a real passion for history. So you write historical romance, historical romantic suspense, historical mystery. <laughs> Where did this <laughs> obviously passion slash obsession with history come from i uh, I, it it rests squarely at the feet of my father uh he he adored history and um any any sort of it was just something we shared you know he would he would drag me off to go and see those wonderful big big historical movies that were very popular at the end of the 70s like Nicholas and Alexander and Cromwell and uh, Wellington you know the Battle of Waterloo you know and and, I mean I'm a visual person so that really meant a lot to me and of course the books that he chose to read to me on a which we did regularly on a Sunday afternoon were always books of his choosing (laughs) very unsuitable for uh, for eight-year-olds um and they always had a, a, a historical overlay, such as, you know, Daphne du Maurier's The King's General, which um, absolutely inspired, fired my passion for the English Civil War. Um, and, yes, that was the, the, the great thing that Dad and I shared, and, uh, and I've always loved history, and I can't, can't add two and two together to make, save my life. But, um, yeah, history was my, history was my, uh, my catnip. But you haven't always been an author. You're actually trained as a lawyer. You've been practising as a lawyer for the huge 
you know, part of your career. Mm. So tell us where and how writing got into your life. Okay. Um, well, the reason I'm a lawyer is because my father said I needed a trade and that writing or archaeology, which were my other two alternatives, were never going to, <laughs> never going to really provide me with uh, with a reliable source of income. Look, I, I've been writing since uh, I can probably started to write, really, and uh, my, my best friend at school and I um, decided we were going to be published authors and uh, we'd sit in the big willow tree in the middle of the courtyard every lunchtime with our notebooks frantically scribbling away. She, she wrote The Intermittent Brain and I wrote The Locket of Grace. And, and for, she was actually published be well, well before me, but uh, we, we, we actually achieved our lifetime ambition. But then, of course, you know, life, children and all the rest of it. And um, it was only when I went on a skiing holiday with the family um, when the children were still quite small and dislocated my shoulder and found myself sort of stuck in a ski lodge with nothing much to do and, and our brand new, we were really techo in those days, brand new notebook computer, which was all of about 400 kilobytes and the only <laughs> program it ran was um, WordPerfect 5.1 and I started writing um, the story that became um, By the Sword, which is also published by Harlequin Escape and uh, entered it into um, Romance Writers of Australia, Emma Darcy contest, not actually having really thought I'd written a romance. And um, it all kind of all went from there. That, that's where it started. And, and yes. And I've just but you continued with the law for quite some time, right? You wrote oh, yeah. part-time there. Yeah. Still yeah. needed a day job, unfortunately. <laughs> but, I mean, I had a very interesting, uh, long and interesting career as, as a lawyer. I didn't sort of go down any conventional paths there, um, working in large law firms or anything like that. I worked for uh, I worked for charities. I worked for um, government utilities. I worked for – I was a legal officer in the, the military. Um, and that more latterly, uh, I was uh, – yeah, I, I worked. I worked for one of the emergency services, um, and uh, more likely ended my days as a company secretary, which, oddly enough, was a job I really enjoyed. I think it appealed to the, the Capricorn brain or something like that. And that was, <laughs> I was able to sort of go more part time then and, and actually really concentrate on the writing. So I was, I've been very lucky in that that respect that I've been able to balance the, mm. my work and, and my writing. So while you were doing that juggle, while you were doing both at the same time, firstly, how many books did you publish during that juggling period? And how, on a practical level, did you juggle? Did you write on weekends? Did you have a dedicated time? Did you write in the car? Like, how did you do it? Um, it yeah, I'm just trying to think, actually. Um, my first, first book was actually published in 2007, uh, which was The King's Man, which is actually the, the sequel, uh, the next book along from By the Sword, and, and then By the Sword was picked up by the same publisher. Um, so they were, I was so excited, they were published by a small e-publishing press in the US, and unfortunately, of course, 2007 was uh, in the days before e-readers had been invented. So, you know, it was a little bit like, here's a wonderful solution to a, a problem that you know, we but there's a link missing somewhere along the line. Um, in terms of in terms of sort of juggling the writing, well, yeah, yeah that was really where I, you know, I could grab time when I could. And uh, I did a lot of writing in my head, going to and commuting to and from work, particularly when I was driving. Mm. Um, uh, and then 
scribbling down the scenes over over lunch or something like that. But uh, yes, you just grab the time when you can. But of course, I was under no particular pressure to uh, to fulfil contracts or mm-hmm. anything like that. It was it's the timing is purely on me from that point so, of view. So, how many books do you think got published during that period of the juggling period? Uh, just looking at, sorry, just looking at my bookshelf. <laughs> uh, well, there was the three Guardians of the Crown books, which were By the Sword, King's Man, and the third one in the in the series, which is Exile's Return. The early version of Lord Somerton's Heir was, of course, published then as well. And then I also indie published um, one, two, three, three other, four books, four other books um, during that time as well. Okay. Well, and um, so- Gather the Bones and Secrets in Time and the two Civil War books. Wow. So you managed to um, be very prolific while you were working full time, but you're also even more prolific, it seems, that after you've taken the plunge to go into writing full time, what prompted you to take the plunge to go full time? What was the trigger and when was that? Actually, it's a really interesting question because uh, it was um, – it was a bad case to be careful what you wish for. Um, I'd, I'd written Singapore Sapphire, which is the first in my Singapore stories. Because uh, you've lived in, in Singapore. You, you lived, lived in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, I had the three years out and during which time I wasn't working, so I was able to write quite a bit during that time while we were living in Singapore. So, yes, we lived in Singapore, and that sort of uh, – I, I had the story calling to me about this um, shorthand typist in the early 1900s and um i so i'd written um singapore sapphire and i just it was a historical mystery it was totally different to anything i'd written before and i just it i just felt it had legs i re, you know i really felt sort of that there was a readership for it and i had um, i had a couple of years of hawking it around um uh agents and publishers and um, doing pitches at conferences and going absolutely nowhere with it um but in the meantime i'd also i'd also um established a very good relationship with harlequin mirror and i'd actually given them singapore sapphire to have a look at and yes then i i went you know i'm just trying to remember the the sequence of events i went to america uh to the historical novel society conference in 2017 and um, I pitched Singapore Sapphire to an agent who picked me up then. And I got back to uh, to, to Australia to find um, Harlequin saying, we, we, oh, we love Singapore Sapphire, but it's kind of not what we publish. So but do you have anything else? And at that time, I was actually able to offer them, a, offer them the first of the Australian books as well. And this all happened within two or three months of my decision to walk away from, from, from full-time work. Uh, my husband and I had done the sums. We, we'd um, decided we had now reached a certain age. We didn't have dependent children. We had, you know, I had I could go on a pension. <laughs> um, and so that was when I'd retired in March of that year. So, uh, yes, and suddenly it all happened. Uh, I got the contract with Harlequin Mirror and Lemmy. Uh, I picked up this agent for the, for the historical mysteries and uh, she picked up Penguin. And I suddenly had... Two two major publishers, <laughs> both wanting two two book contracts, and both having the same deadlines. And uh, as I said, I had a bad case of so be careful what you wish for because it came true. 
Wow, that's fantastic. Now, the Singapore series, I understand that in that first book, um, your protagonist was inspired by uh, uh, some research you've done in the in the library there and you came across an ad in the Straits Times or something. Is that right? That's absolutely true. That's exactly how it happened. Tell, tell me about that. I was- I wasn't working, so I, I and I was sort of I was playing around with all sorts of different writing at the time, and I was involved in a very good writers group in Singapore as well. And I took myself off to the National Library, and I was scrolling through old microfiches of uh, old back copies of the Straits Times, which is the major newspaper there from the early 1900s, just to try and get a feel for what Singapore was like at that time. And and there on the front page, it was a fairly large ad. Was uh, um, Shorthand, shorthand, and uh, shorthand typist officer services, uh, absolute secrecy and confidentiality uh, guaranteed. You know, applied. I can't remember Mrs. Russell or whatever her name was, and she just leapt off the page at me, and I thought, "What? What's the story here? Why is she only available between these particular hours that she specified in her? You know, where does she come from? What's her backstory?" And who knows who she was? I have actually done a bit of research on who she was, but uh, um, Harriet Gordon, my protagonist in uh, in Singapore Sapphire, was born. Uh, but it did take me quite a long time to sort of uh, writing a historical mystery is very, very different, and I wanted it to be a series. So whatever I did in the first book really had to set the ground for everything else that followed in the subsequent book. So I had to get all of her world organized in my own brain and given I'm a pantser that was actually quite a challenge to do that um so yes it, it was it wasn't until the NaNoWriMo of 2011 that I actually put Harriet down on paper so as to speak so, so yeah, if, that's you had to, came from. if you had to organize all of her world in your own brain in a country that you did not grow up in in, in the era that you weren't living in how did you do that? Do you do the, all of the research first to create the world in your head so that she has somewhere to be in? Or do you research as you go, as you see what happens to Harriet? Uh, it was a little bit of both. Now, bear in mind, I'm also, I come from that world. I was, I was born in Africa in the late 1950s in, in, a, in a colonial city. Uh, English colony, Kenya, uh, as it was back then. Uh, we lived there over independence. So in a way, I am actually writing about a world I, I actually instinctively know, even if even if I was a very small child when it before independence. Um, and, of course, it, while I was living in Singapore, I, I did every historical tour there was going. And uh, I, because actually to find historical Singapore beneath the modern city is actually quite a challenge. And uh, they, there was so much destruction during the 1970s of, yes. of, you know, like particularly like the police headquarters in South Bridge Road and the, the magistrate's court across the road gone. You know, they, they were all I've got are pictures. And, but I have pictures and that's the amazing thing. There is so much photographic evidence of Singapore at, at that time. Um, and I sort of organised it all into Pinterest boards um, in, in a kind of not a very organised way, but a sort of organised for me type of way. So I, I could visualise that. And once I found a map of the uh, town as it was around that period as well, which was incredibly detailed and actually sort of showed every the name of every every house and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, it all started to come together. So it, it's a her world is a little bit of an amalgam of of 
of fact on the ground, but also I, I did make up a lot of stuff too. I'm a writer, I make stuff up. So the school that her brother teaches at is totally fictional. The um, detective branch where Inspector Curran works, there was a detective branch most certainly, but it's not as as the one that I've depicted is. Um, but I, I love working in also also the real characters that came along, mm -hmm. like the Inspector General mm -hmm. of the Straits Settlement Police, Cuscadon. He was he was definitely a real place, and you'll still find a Cuscadon place off Orchard Road. Um, so yes, yeah, so real people and real places mingled with a bit of fiction, as, and that's, so, that's a whole fun of it. Yes, well, it, you sound like a history nut, a history buff. <laughs> um, so when you're writing, obviously that was Singapore and in the in the past, but, you know, 100 or so years ago. Um, but when you're writing about uh, the Regency period or the English Civil War, it's, it, there's, uh, you, could, you couldn't draw on your childhood. No. <laughs> so because you have been so into history since you were, very young because of your dad, did you already know a lot of these worlds and these facts? Or, again, did you have to go do quite a lot of in-depth research for the periods in which you write? Well, the Civil War I had absolutely no problem writing books about because it's been my deep, deep passion since I was 11 years old. And I literally devoured. I devoured books. I, you have to look at my bookshelf. Here, and I've got three rows of books on the Civil War. And I just have um, such a, I, I feel like I have, I'm not sure if my readers agree, I have such a sort of um, DNA <laughs> connection to that period of time that uh, I, I could sit down tomorrow and, and write a book set, you know, the Battle of Master Moor or whatever, without, with very little research, you know, apart from the actual details. I, I, know, I know all the background that led up to that particular battle, that, that sort of thing. Um, the the two I've had I've had to do a lot of work on were were the Regency because my goodness you've got to get that right as a writer because the Regency readers are are fanatical you know they're as fanatical as I am about the English Civil War and you've got to make sure you get the spelling of all the the games they played and the way the fan worked and all of that you've got to get all of that right and what barouches they travelled in. So, yes, that, that was a lot of work. Um, and the other one I had a lot of, I've had to do way more research than I ever thought I would have to, of course, the two Australian books, oddly enough, mm -hmm. even though they're set in a not-so-distant past, like the 1870s isn't really all that far away. Um, but it was, it was, you know, the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. And um, that, that took, a, and also I was dealing with a fairly technical technical issues of gold mining and things like that, which it's one thing to go to a place as a tourist and sort of yes. poke around and it's fun, but to actually write about how they did hard rock gold mining and uh, that is a totally different kettle of fish. And, um, yes, I had to do a lot more research for that. But About yeah. how many books do you write in a year? <laughs> uh, two, uh, look, it's been, it's been two a year for the last three years and I'm, I'm actually tired <laughs> Yes, it's it's not my natural. I, I would like to write one book a year, and I think that's what I will be doing going forward. Um, I, I've it, look, it's it's worked. It's been fun for the last three years, but you know when I've been also we've also been battling COVID, which you think would yes. be wonderful. You know, you think all those Melbourne lockdowns would have just been built for writers, but uh, and I found actually writing during and I'm still struggling. I find writing during this uncertain period of uncertainty incredibly difficult. So, so yes, with, I think the rest. With the um, two books a year for the last 
three years. That's intense. Um, how did you manage your time to make sure? Because I'm presuming they were under contract, right? You, know, you had yeah. to deliver them. So how did you manage your time to ensure that it got done? Because it is full on. Do you have a Gantt chart or something like that? <laughs> I do. I do. Yes, I am. Uh, you really I do? Mean, I have a cop. I have a corporate background, so I mean the way I the way I I pre, you know when I I was sitting there looking oh my god they're two they're similar deadlines oh my god what am I going to do mm. uh, I just sort of said well look they're just they're like two corporate projects and yes. uh, I just have to I just have to work out how I'm going to you know I'll do a draft for one and put that away and do the draft for the other or you know how am I going to balance these two books and and meet the deadlines. Um, and I've had to had very good hard look at how I my own process obviously along the way I can't afford to be a a, a dreamy sort of pantser going well yeah they could do this they could do that I've had to be I've had to do some yeah, plotting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did actually, your process change after you started having that pressure? Absolutely, I had to be way more way more organised about how I'm not I'm not saying I am a plotter still, but I I have um, I have found a, a way of planting or plotting that works <laughs> works for me um that at least gives me some uh, lily pads along the way of the story that uh, that I can follow uh, also I have to because they're contracted books I now actually have to write a, a fairly detailed synopsis as a submission yes. to the publishers so I have that as well so I do actually have some structure whether the eventual book turns out looking anything like that structure is another question but at least it gives me gives me some solid ground to, to work off rather than going, I've got an idea. I have a character. <laughs> so tell us about your writing day um, when you're actually writing, you know, in, in the depths of writing. Um, what time you wake up, what, what's your structure, what's your routine and what, if any, your goal is for the day? Okay, um, um, I am fairly structured these days, only nothing like a lockdown to make you <laughs> give you a structure to the day. Uh, look, I'm a fairly, let's say fairly early riser, seven o'clock-ish. I like to exercise in the morning. Um, I always thought I was a morning writer until I, until I started doing it full time. And I now find I need the morning to get stuff done. And whether that stuff is doing the shopping, doing my exercise, um, you know, visiting my mother, whatever, whatever the morning's going through the emails checking Facebook doing all of that and I'll have an early lunch and then after lunch I sit down and uh, I'll write and I use Scrivener and I've been mm. a, I've been an ardent um, uh, user of Scrivener ever since pretty much ever since it came out I even had to buy a Mac so I could use it um, <laughs> I really did and I've never used a Mac in my life um, yeah so so I'll, I'll write I'll give myself three or four hours of, of writing um, and that that and a word a daily word count of minimum thousand words a day. Yeah, most days I get there. I have bad days when I don't, and I have some days that I go over. So that's fine. But what what where I find Scrivener good for my Capricorn brain is it gives me that daily word. It calculates the daily word count, and um, mm. it, it could be less than a thousand words, which is fine. Um, and it gives me a big hooray when I've actually exceeded my daily word count um but it does allow me again it's part of that project management system that uh, I can actually calculate uh, how long it's going to take me to write x 
amount of words. And um, yeah, is it fairly consistent? Like it takes you X number of hours, or some days it might take you an hour, sometimes it might take you ten hours. Oh, no, uh, totally inconsistent. It entirely <laughs> depends. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, there are days. There have been days where I can sit down and write three thousand words in an afternoon, and there can be days where I sit and struggle to get a hundred done. So <laughs> it, it really depends what's going on out there that sort of um, that's impacting on on me that uh, will determine uh, how how the book is going and how the word counts going. So in a lot of your books, a common theme is romance, um, historical romance, romantic suspense, and so on. But And yet you say that in that first book, which you submitted to the Romance Writers um, competition, you didn't, it didn't occur to you that it was a romance. So what's the, why do you feel you have this natural tendency towards writing romance? Look, I, I wrote that first book just because it was a story I wanted to tell myself and it was the sort of story that I liked to read, which was um, historical, uh, had lots of action and adventure and difficult times. And But I, I, I did like a story with a, a very attractive hero that I could fall in love with and a heroine who's going to have a hard time and um, that they're both going to end up happily ever after. I, as I said, if you'd, if you'd said to me back in those days that uh, oh you you know romance my, my thought went immediately to um harlequin mills and boone well i don't i don't i've tried but i can't write harlequin mills and boone um I, I i didn't understand about labels and so when my friend who read the story said oh it's a romance i was really quite taken back i thought ah yeah, I suppose, I suppose it is. And I, I, you know, as I said, I thought I thought romance was you know, mm. lovely little, lovely little, very uh, gorgeous books that um, that my my friends used to read. And I, I hadn't read like the romance writers. Um, and of course, now it's such a broad church. Romance is such yes. a broad church. And yes. I realise now, whatever whatever book I'm reading, they nearly always involve a relationship between two people, and. Um, in, in, a, in a romantic sense, as long as they kill someone at the end, they kill one of the characters at the end of it, <laughs> they end up happily ever after. It's a romance. So, so um, once you entered that world then, did you then, because as you said, it didn't occur to you, oh, you hadn't read romance, right? Um, uh, it, 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 when you entered that world, did you then have to learn all the tropes and make sure that your story adhered to relevant ones? <sighs> yes and no. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd go to the conferences and I'd come away absolutely mind. Oh my God, you know, the three act structure. I never knew about that. A lot of it I was doing instinctively anyway. Yes. Um, I, uh, it was only when I sort of went back to my early books and with the knowledge that I had, and I went, oh, actually, I, I was actually already doing. I was actually doing hero's journey. I was actually doing three act, three act stories um, without consciously knowing about it. Um, the, the tropes of romance, no, I didn't, I didn't even know what tropes meant, I don't think. I <laughs> 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 worry about whether it was, a, I was looking at uh, billionaires or, or, or uh, chic's babies or anything. <laughs> uh, yes. So, so you just wrote the book you wanted to write? I just wrote the book I wanted to write. I just told the story to myself that I wanted to tell because I had run out of books on the shelf that I could uh, I could read. Yes, right. Right as well, write them. (laughs) With the historical aspect, research and writing, have you ever had readers um, contact you and say, 
no, that colour was meant to be purple. <laughs> um, no, no, I haven't, thank heavens. <laughs> thank heavens. Right. You must be accurate then. <laughs> uh, yes, or, or else my, my readers are <laughs> just glossing over bits, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, because they, they will tell you if you do. If you, uh, hang on, I, I, I know, I tell a lie. I have, I have recently... Um, Particularly with the with Harriet books, I, I had you know had a reader the other day contact me and say, "You do know that um, there is no safety catch on a uh, on a Webley revolver, don't you?" Uh, well, I had actually that was for the second book, and I had actually found that out when I was writing the third book that there was no safety catch on a Webley. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so I, now I have had a few of male readers actually contacting me with the right. pointing out my little. Uh, my little uh, mistakes or if I've got, um, you know, the difficulty obviously writing Singapore stories is um, I do try to uh, in- incorporate uh, language and yes. uh, my understanding of what particular words are may not be as accurate as I would like them to be. So I don't mind being picked up on that at all. That's, uh, mm. you know, fair, mm-hmm. fair cop. But, um, yes, yeah, so they, 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 they do do that. <laughs> let's, <clears throat> let's come back to Lord Summerton's air. Um, what was the most challenging thing about writing that book? Uh, the most challenging aspect of it was was the Regency trope. Now you mentioned it, was, mm. was getting getting that you know getting that sort of um, that balance of uh, of the ton, you know, understanding what the ton was and uh, and how the society moved in those particular days and uh, and how um, did you do that? Because there's no like um, one book that's the complete guide to Regency or something. Well, there is actually. <laughs> well, then you know. <laughs> so my my very good friend um, uh, Jennifer. Um, oh God. Anyway, she she uh, she wrote a book called about Georgette Hare, um, oh, yes. Georgette Hare's world, and. Um, uh, uh, I have to admit, I had that on my bookshelf and I pulled it off and thought, actually, this is pretty much everything I need to know, fantastic. at least as a starting point. Oh, yes, mm. it was Baruches and uh, these were the sort of characters they had. And uh, so I found that incredibly helpful. And, and uh, yeah, I was involved in um, the Romance Writers uh, of America and, and they, had a, they had a Regency chapter at that point. And I, I did go to the conference mm. and I did, did go, you know, got to sort of dress up and go dancing and play piquet and all, all of that sort of thing <laughs> as well oh they were very great fun the, the Beaumont uh but yes passionate about what they do and I, I I don't think it was a world that I felt particularly comfortable long term in in right. playing in so um, you'd rather so, do the English Civil War I suspect I would much rather <laughs> yes but I unfortunately the readership for English Civil War is like yeah <laughs> <laughs> no I, I then discovered the Australian history and the uh, and the Singapore history and the you know late Victorian stuff and uh, I, I did write a book set in post-World War One which I really really enjoyed writing so uh, yeah I, I, I'm not saying that there will never be another Regency book I really enjoyed writing it and mm. I have actually re- released a little novella since as well um, so I'm having a think about that one. Um, the readers, the readers seem to have uh, warmed very much to Lord Summerton's there. So, well, as I said, never say no, never say never. I just need to make <laughs> <it> the <laughs> What's the most rewarding thing? What was the most rewarding thing about writing it? Oh, look, I have to, I have to say, without without a shadow of a doubt, it is readers. And um, I mean, when you launch your first book out into into the world. It, 
and somebody other than your friends and family uh, do a review on it or uh, or send send you a note. Um, my goodness, it, it it absolutely makes it all worthwhile. Um, particularly the Australian books, I've had a lot of reader notes come to me about, particularly as I've set it in a in a part of Victoria that that is a real part of Victoria, even though the town itself is uh, fictional. Um, it's a part a lot of people that mean a lot to a lot of people and they're very quick to to sort of say oh I really love reading that story because you know I had my honeymoon there or great uncle Jack oh. was the mine manager or uh, something like that and, uh, and when did you write those the Australian books yes uh, they're, the, they're the most recent Harlequin Mirror books so and um, um and um yes yeah so tell us the premise of those books and their titles all right, it's, uh, it's a series called the Maidens Creek series because uh, it's set in a little gold mining town called Maidens Creek. Um, the first one's the postmistress and the second one is the gold miner's sister. So they're standalone stories uh, set around this little town. And, uh, I wanted to write a small town series. So having done, you know, I've got Harriet Gordon, who's a continuation character. But I wanted a continuation town for this story. So again, had to sort of do the whole world building thing with, with it as well. Did so, you go there? The stories are oh, it's it's based on a town I know very well called Wallhalla right. in um, in the in the um, high country of um, Victoria. Yeah, so I've been there many many times, and uh, but again, as I said, knowing something as a tourist is different to knowing it from mm -hmm. the point of view of writing a story. Um, so I really I had to, I spent a week living up there in a in a cottage and really sort of deep diving into how the mine actually worked and, um, you know, how, you know, all the little bits and pieces that, that are all background. The reader probably won't even notice, but I know that they're there. Yeah, so uh, so continuing. So they're related but standalone. So um, and I'm currently finishing the third one, which doesn't have a title at the moment, um, which will draw the whole series to a close. <laughs> How fantastic. Um, that's awesome. So um, it sounds like you are still it being extremely busy. <laughs> You're finishing this one off. What's the next one? Um, what's the next cab off the rank? Uh, well, this, this book, um, the third Maiden's Creek book, is due in February. Yeah. And after that, I actually don't have, I don't have any contracts. Um, I don't know what's next. I think I just really need, need a break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. I, I know, actually, no, I tell a lie. I do know what the next one will be, and that will be the fourth Harriet Gordon's, fourth and last Harriet Gordon. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Just between us girlfriends. Um, <laughs> poss possibly the last um, okay. in, the in the Harriet Gordon series, because I think that that's one where the um, the series arc has run its course, and uh, I, I can tie it up in the in the last last book. I, I don't believe in extending series for the sake of extending series. I think, yeah. I think, yes, if your character has an arc, like Harriet and Robert have their own arcs, but also the series has an arc and has yeah. has to come to a logical conclusion. So, um, which is not to say there won't be any more um, Harriet Gordon stories, just not in this series. Yeah. She may move on to something else. I could talk to you for hours because not just about writing, but about all of the different worlds that are obviously occupying your brain. Um, but we have limited time. So let's um, end off with what would your top three tips be to aspiring writers who would love to be in a position where you are one day? They're just writing, writing and writing. Well, uh, keep writing, but make sure you actually write something that has a beginning and something that has an end. 
it's no <laughs> point rewriting rewriting that uh, that those first three chapters ten zillion times because I have seen this. I've seen the most wonderful first three chapters, but unless you can actually carry through a, 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 something that's going to end up looking vaguely book shaped, and it can be <laughs> as ugly as hell. You know, it's not. It's the rough draft. It's not going to be what any any publisher or editor is ever going to see. But you need to tell yourself the complete story from beginning to end. Um, however long that takes, and once you have that that story structured, that's when you go back and write. That's when you start the writing process. That's when you, if you think of it being like a painter, uh, so you've done your rough sketch, and now you're going back with the uh, with the oil paint to fill in the details and and bring that painting to life. So uh, very very important. My number one tip is, um, in the words of that wonderful romance writer Emma Darcy finish the damn book she used to say <laughs> yeah great <laughs> finish the book um look my second my second tip is to try and find a tribe um mm. for example I have I have the romance writers of Australia and I also have within that I also have my own little writers group and uh, I could not function as a writer without that tribe they are they are really really important to me there's bound to be interest groups that um that have facebook groups or something like that but uh, yes and even if it's a local writers group where you're all disparate um which is what we were in singapore you know at least at least you've got a group of people you can talk writers stuff with which is yeah. very important so yeah find a tribe that's the second one and the third one is oh let me think um <laughs> so I covered it under the first one I how about it. something under historical about the historical um, aspect oh okay yes no i definitely don't get bogged down in the research uh do as much research as you need to start your story off but if you find a research point that you need to make don't stop what you're doing and go and research everything you want to know about crocodiles and sewers in london make a note in your manuscript that you may need to research crocodiles and sewers in london and keep going and you may find when you get to the end of the book that you don't need to research crocodiles and sewers in london at all but you could have wasted one or two days along the way in doing that so so historical research is important but don't let it slow your writing down Right, right first, research second. <laughs> Wonderful. And on that note, um, look, base, thank you so much for your time today. Based on the diversity and breadth and depth and interesting stories of your books, I think your brain would be a really interesting place to live. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, we'll read your books. So thank you so much for your time today, Alison. Thank you so much for having me, Valerie. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're a fan of romantic fiction and would love to write stories in this hugely popular market, our self-paced course in romance writing will be your perfect match. Romance is the biggest selling genre in fiction, and many may think it's easy to write. But a good romance novel is much more than a love story. In fact, more than any other genre, there are crucial structural beats your story must hit to truly captivate your readers and have them coming back for more. This online course is your ultimate guide to writing romance novels that sell. Discover everything you need to know from the key tropes, conventions and reader expectations to the variety of subgenres and publishing options available. You'll cover how to craft a tightly structured story, one that's filled with believable characters and intimacy, as well as the right level of heat for your book category. 
Most importantly, you'll learn the techniques to ensure a satisfying climax every time. And because this is one of our online self-paced courses, you'll enjoy instant access and can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writercentercomau slash romance. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Alison Stewart. I always think it's fascinating how people structure their day, structure their career to really carve out successful full-time careers as authors. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I was so thrilled to go to an author talk last week uh, by Paddy Miller, who of course is one of our presenters at the Australian Writers' Centre and an incredible writer. She teaches our life writing and a memoir course here at the Australian Writers' Centre. Her book has just been released and it's called True Friends and I bought many copies because I want to give it to many of my true friends. Um, Okay, so we have three copies of True Friends by Patty Miller to give away and you could win one of three copies. Friendships are among the most important relationships in our lives, often outlasting love affairs, marriages, even at times family connections. The loss of a friend can be one of life's most disturbing events, yet these friend breakups are little acknowledged in our culture. In True Friends, acclaimed author Patty Miller recounts the joyful making and then painful ending of a long, close friendship. It's a deep and influential relationship in her life, but when it inexplicably unravels, Patty is left searching for answers. As she tries to make sense of this ending, Patty considers other important friendships throughout her life, questioning who we are drawn to, what we really know of each other, and why some friendships endure while others end. So you could win one of three copies of this book. Just go to writercentercomau slash win. And if you are listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, just go to that URL and there'll be some other fantastic book there for you to win. This brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you have a really productive week. I'm not sure what I'm going to be focusing on this week because Easter's coming up. I've got house guests and um, yeah, I think there'll be a fair bit of procrastinating before they come. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'd love to connect with you. You can find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And of course, do join us in the podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Have a great week and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want To Be A Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.